Hello, hello, and welcome to Spooky Season here at Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. It is officially that time. Welcome to a spooktastic month of all things art history and Halloween here on APT. We are kicking off the theme today with kitsch. That's right. Today we'll be talking about some origins of Halloween traditions that have led to common kitsch aesthetics for the holiday season. All right, all you goblins and ghouls, are you ready to art pop talk? (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello, it's Chitty Chatty time. Chitty Chatty time. Happy October. Happy October. How's the weather there? Um... It's it's good, I guess. That was a weird question. To Why is that weird? It's such a nice day here. It's like so oh. crisp. I'm like really excited about it, but I've been stuck in my apartment, you know, working on this damn podcast. <laughs> I can't enjoy the crisp weather I I get today. I think I'm gonna go oh. go for a walk later and try to enjoy it. The only oh, reason why nice. I know it's nice weather is because I had to go to my property management building because I have this giant hornet's nest that's looming over my balcony. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to, I didn't think you were going to start off with how's the weather. How's the weather? <laughs> it is fine. It is. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good over here. It's not necessarily like super crisp outside yet but um that's okay i updated my uh phone wallpaper to reflect october though with a feature from miss mm. gaga of mm. course of course from from her jazz concert i changed my wallpaper to a new picture of lady gaga at the beginning of each month to reflect said month's theme of gaga so, yes <laughs> Monster season. Pause up. Monster season. Let's do it. Did you listen to Lover Sale? Yes, I have. So I had a really big event this week, a fundraiser, um, an auction at the nonprofit that I work for. And so while I was setting up all the decorations, I was playing Love for Sale. But I was feeling like, I don't know, just with like the nature, with the nature of this event and kind of the vibe that I I felt like it had all throughout the day I was listening for listening to Love for Sale, but then I was listening to Joanne. And mm. I don't know, I just there was like a lot of old songs, like good classic songs being played, and I felt like Joanne just would have been such a good album for this band to play at this oh. philanthropy event and what have you. So anyways, that was my hot take. They did not, but it's okay. Uh, I really loved Love for Sale. Of course, but I'm of thoroughly course. enjoying my listening experience. <laughs> no complaints. And no complaints. you got to listen to that album quite a bit on your little adventure this weekend. You want to talk about it? I, I did. I would love to talk about it. Well, I was listening to the album on my drive up to Boston and some news that Gian and I <laughs> teased last week that I can finally talk about is that I will be moving up to Boston at the beginning of November. Um, Boy of APT, Andrew James, Marvel expert, has started his job today, his first day was today, so happy first day, Andrew. 
Uh, but he got a job up in Boston, and this past weekend we were moving him up to our apartment, and then I'm going to finish some things up uh, with work down here in PA, and then I'm going to be moving up there to join him next month. So I am very excited and this is a plug for all the art pop tarts in boston if we have any listeners up there i would love to connect with some artsy pop culture people up there and i'd love to hang out or if anyone knows of anything that i should be checking out in boston please uh please let me know i would greatly appreciate it omg boston apt meetup very cute cute Alrighty, well, are we ready to get into some art news? Alright, today's art news is wildly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, this was, a lot of people were sending this story to us last week, which is very cool and very exciting. So, the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Aalborg, Denmark, received a trick instead of a treat when artist Jens Hanning turned in two blank canvases in exchange for what would be basically $84,000. According to a written agreement between the museum and the artist, Hanning was expected to utilize banknotes from the payment to recreate two pieces of art that he's previously made. An average Danish annual income and an average Austrian annual income. And these works were from like 2007 and 2010, I think, around that time. The original artworks represented the respective average of annual incomes of Austrians and Danes using cash bills. Their contract even stated that the museum would give Hanning an additional 6,000 euros to update the work if needed. At the time the works were initially exhibited, the Danish piece highlighted the average income of 328,000 kroner, which is basically about 37,800 US dollars. While the average Austrian salary illustrated about 25,000 euros or $29,000. But for this latest rendition of the pieces, Hanning delivered two completely empty frames with no banknotes to be seen. The piece is called Take the Money and Run. Hanning explained in an interview with a Danish radio program that, quote, the work is that I have taken their money. It's not theft. It's a breach of contract. And breach of contract is part of the work. The director of the museum said, quote, The curator received an email in which Jens Hanning wrote that he had made a new piece of artwork and changed the work title into Take the Money and Run. Subsequently, quote, We could ascertain that the money had not been put into the work. And then, in fact, when they showed up, the frames that were meant to be filled with cash were actually empty. <laughs> when he finally saw take the money and run, the director said that he laughed, quote, Jens is known for his conceptual and artistic art with humoristic touches. He gave us that, but also a bit of a wake-up call as everyone now wonders, where did the money go? According to Hanning's press release, quote, the idea behind it was to show how salaries can be used to measure the value of work 
and to show national differences within the European Union. But by changing the title of the work to Take the Money and Run, Haning questions artists' rights and their working conditions in order to establish more equitable norms within the art industry. Haning said, quote, Everyone would like to have more money, and in our society, work industries are valued differently. The artwork is essentially about the working conditions of artists. He also says that we have a responsibility of questioning the structures of what we are a part of. And if these structures are completely unreasonable, we must break with them. It can be your marriage, your work, it can be any type of societal structure. The artist claimed that the stunt was in reaction to the low fees offered to him by the museum, and completing the works would have required him to pay an extra 25,000 kroner, which is about $4,000, out of pocket. Um, He didn't show any remorse. He said that he has no intention to return the money. Quote, I encourage other people who have just as miserable working conditions as me to do the same. If they are sitting on some shit job and not getting money and are actually being asked to give money to go into work, then take the box and run off. The museum, however, is enjoying quite a bit of publicity, for the time being at least. Um, These empty frames were actually included in the exhibition Work It Out. And this exhibition examines the labor market and working conditions of artists. This is like, oh my God, so freaking ironic. However, the museum is planning to claim the loan back whenever the exhibition ends in January. Quote, it wasn't what we had agreed on in the contract, but we got new and interesting art, said the director again. When asked if the museum would consider taking legal action against the artist, the director replied, quote, right now we will wait and see. If the money is not returned on January 16th, as we agreed, we will of course take the necessary steps to ensure that Jens Hanning complies with his contract. Holy shit, Gianna, I have so many thoughts. Fuck this museum. <laughs> They're hanging it on the walls right now. They're getting so much publicity. It is like... A fucking Banksy-type scenario, like Jens Hawning's just shredding an artwork, and it's becoming more valuable. These blank canvases are becoming so fucking valuable, and this museum wants its money back? Okay, I'm just saying that the art Pop-Tarts in Paris came through with some pictures of the Ark. Like, I'm going to need an art Pop-Tart. Oh my gosh. In Denmark. Our Danish art part. Our yes. Danish. I love a good Danish. This I is love your a good time. Danish. This is your time. This is your time to shine. Danish is rise. Send me a picture of that <laughs> label. Like, I don't, like, obviously send me a pic of the artwork if you're already there. But, like, I need to read this label. I'm very fascinated. The language of this is everything. I want to read the label. I just... What? You hung it on the fucking walls and you're asking for your money back. It would be one thing if they didn't hang it up. You know what I mean? Like it would be one thing if they like completely rejected it and they wanted their money back. They didn't exhibit it. You know what I mean? But they are profiting up all this press. Do you know how many ticket sales? I I guess I don't know the structure of the museum, but I'm assuming that an exhibition, a special exhibition like that costs money. Do we know how much it costs to get into the exhibition? It doesn't even matter because even if the the museum, even if it doesn't charge money or even if the exhibition doesn't charge money, that doesn't matter. It's about bringing that tourism and those bodies into the space because whatever funding they ask for in the future will be part of that and that's how they'll get money. Like, that's the structure. Like, 
art museums, cultural destinations, raise tourism in the area. Like it's all like it's all right. part of it. So it doesn't even matter if they're not even directly charging for it. Like, yeah, that's a really good. There point. are that's like a, but other like, powers that be that affect that. Are they going to return the works? What I wonder what the loan agreement is like because they came to him asking to make these pieces for the show and I wonder if they would be part of their permanent collection you know like I wonder if these works were going to go in their collection or if they were supposed to go back to the artist I'm also I'm curious because the artist said that he would have he would have had to put about 3,900 of his own money into Mm -hmm. this artwork to get it completed but I'm curious if there was like a stipend involved to give him that was outside of that lump sum of money that was just supposed to go towards the artwork. Like, what's that situation? Right. So, what is his what is what his is actual his actual pay? takeaway? What is his actual profit from it? Not just the the, like because, the money that was supposed to be that was supposed to make up the artwork in itself. Right. Because we got the quote, and we're getting a little taste of you know. I encourage other people who have just as miserable working conditions as me to do the same so was this a shitty deal to begin with and he just saw the opportunity (laughs) from the get-go yeah but also what is also wild to me is like if i am understanding this correctly like they would have been filled with actual cash and so it's wild that a museum in the first place wouldn't pay an artist but they would just like fork out basically $84,000 to be put literally on the walls again. You know what I mean? But they're like I, all the I, all the money in the museum, the value's already in all the other stuff on the wall. And now this like this blank now this blank canvas is still worth $84,000 because of like the prestige. I just think feel like this is one for the history books i don't know gardner's history of art look look out um bianca you and i need to put january 16th right in the calendar oh for sure oh my god i don't think i'm gonna be able to process anything till january 16th so let's feel as though maybe i'm gonna put a pin in it (laughs) oh my gosh oh i cannot wait to see what happens that is what like are they gonna give them back to him I just don't know. And then even so, I wonder, I feel like he could just sell the canvases to somewhere better. No, which and then, would be even And then pay a... that fucking museum back and still break even. No, right. Because either way, like, even in the end, okay, if it's a breach of contract, so he has to give his money back over to this place. Okay, that's fine. Since he didn't complete the artwork, they should in turn give him back his artwork that he's in the right to. But he could just go sell that for the same exact amount of money and keep it if not more all for himself because he wouldn't have to put the money in the piece because that's not part of it now this is fucking genius i just loophole i I fucking stand like a pissed off artist just not taking any shit from a museum this is level of like Banksy pressing a button and shredding his own artwork in the auction house no, totally. type moment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is like a baller move. It is. It's so fucking cool. I just like, I cannot get over this story. Okay, Danishes, we have put you in the oven. You are rising. You are hot. Let's go. 
Danishes. Mm, I could go for a Danish right now. Nom nom. Mm, nom nom. <laughs> um, well, should we get into today's art pop talk? Absolutely. For today's art pop talk, we are talking about the origins of Halloween traditions and how they have led to common kitsch aesthetics for the holiday seasons. We are going to be thinking about and analyzing all of the things that we kind of take for granted and normally do and see this time of year, whether as kids or adults, things like bobbing for apples, avoiding black cats, giving candy out to strangers, which is usually a very unacceptable thing, (laughs) and wearing masks. So Gianna, will you walk us through the origins of it all? Yes, it would be my pleasure. So why do we do all of these things? Most of it all is wrapped up in superstition, both old and new, and not shockingly, these kitsch actions are derived from either respecting the dead, honoring past loved ones, or fearing spirits that might enter our homes. How can we give the spirits goods, food, or treats? But also, how do we trick them into thinking we're also a fellow ghosty so they don't possess us? <laughs> But what is the scariest thing of all about spooky season, you might ask? That we as a society cannot even comprehend that is so frightening and we become so worrisome that it may happen. To be an unmarried woman. So the fear of not marrying and doing rituals to determine your future marital status is one of the most fascinating traditions that isn't a mainstream part of Halloween at all. And you could even say, including our next topic, will be that involvement of kitsch. But later, uh, if we do have time, I do want to talk about how fascinating these odd rituals are and how I think it's also a little bit of a huge missed opportunity for conceptual and commentative horror. We do have like bridal horror and like, you know, female kind of monstrous. The dead bride. Yeah, a little bit of that. But it's interesting to me that the fear of not marrying isn't used more because of this history, even though it's not mainstream. Like how has mm. a horror person not like just done a basic Google search because this came up for me, like basic Halloween Google search, you know? <laughs> So let's start from the beginning. Most of the history that has affected American Halloween culture and our consumer world comes from Celtic traditions and the festival called Samhain on October 31st, when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth on the night before the New Year, which was November 1st, the boundaries between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. The new year celebrated on November 1st marked the end of the summer, the end of the harvest, and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. So due to the transition in the season, this time of year, this holiday became very superstitious and a scary holiday because, you know, when 2000 years ago, you're so dependent on the natural world for survival, that's like super real. So cold weather is not fun. So the relationship between religious figures and the natural world and the spirit world became important as the Celts thought that the presence of the otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids or Celtic priests to make predictions about the future. 
To commemorate the day and help protect them from the winter, the Druids built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals and sacrifices to the Celtic deities. During the celebration, the Celts wore costumes typically consisting of animal heads and skins and attempting to tell each other's fortunes. Now moving a little bit forward, by 43 CE, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of Celtic territory. In the course of 400 years that they ruled the Celts' land, two festivals of Roman origin were combined with the traditional Celtic celebration of Samhain. The first was Feralia, a day in late October when the Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. The second day was to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona is the apple, which was also the fruit that the Romans brought with them through all these territories that they conquered. And the incorporation of the celebration into Sowen probably helps explain the tradition of bobbing uh, for apples that is practiced today on Halloween, which used to be the superstitious prediction test of which young women would be married off first, essentially, and I'll get into that a little bit. Next is where we get a new development of the haunted season, All Saints Day and All Hallows' Eve, with the influence of Protestant religion. On May 13th, 609 CE, the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs' Day was established in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later explained the festival to include all saints as well as all martyrs and move the observance from May 13th to November 1st. By the 9th century, the influence of Christianity had spread into Celtic land, where it gradually blended and replaced other Celtic traditions. In 1000 CE, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead. And it is widely believed today that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic festival of the dead with a related church-sanctioned holiday. All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to Samhain, with big bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels, and devils. All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows or All Hallowsmas. The night before it, the traditional night of Samhain in the Celtic religion, and began to be called All Hallows Eve and then eventually Halloween. So there's like a lot of like, it's this, it's this, now it's this type situation. When does Halloween come to America? So the celebration of Halloween was extremely limited in colonial New England because of the rigid Protestant belief system there. Halloween was much more common in Maryland and other southern colonies. So as the beliefs and customs of different European ethnic groups and first peoples meshed, this kind of developed a more distinctly American version of Halloween that we see to emerge. The first celebration included something that was referred to as play parties, which were public events held to celebrate the harvest. And then we get neighborhoods that would start to share stories of the dead, tell each other's fortunes. They would dance and sing, ghost stories, all that jazz. Colonial Halloween festivals also featured the telling of ghost stories and mischief making of all kind. By the middle of the 19th century, annual autumn festivals did also become common, but Halloween was not yet celebrated everywhere in the country. In the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with new immigrants, also including Irish peoples fleeing the Irish potato famine, which also helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween more nationally. 
I did want to get into the kitsch of it all here as well. And and I think that we should start off with the most kitsch activity of them all, which is trick-or-treating. So borrowing from the Celtic history of costuming, our Roman celebratory history, and throw in that newer European tradition as well with All Souls Day, we get trick-or-treating. During the festivities, poor citizens would beg for food, and families would give them pastries called soul cakes. In return for their promise to pray for the family's dead relatives, the distribution of soul cakes was encouraged by the church as a way to replace the ancient practice of leaving food and wine for roaming spirits. The practice, which was referred to as, quote, going is souling, was eventually taken up by children who would visit the houses of their neighborhood and be given ale, food, and money. On Halloween, when it was believed that ghosts came back to the earthly world, people thought that they would encounter, you know, ghosty friends if they left their homes. So to avoid being recognized by these ghosts, people would wear masks and participate in that costuming when they left their homes after dark so that the ghosts would mistake them for fellow spirits. On Halloween, to keep ghosts away from their houses, people would also place bowls of food outside of their homes to appease the ghosts and prevent them from attempting to enter. Kind of same vibe, you know, when like a house just has like a bowl of candy on their porch, like leave me alone, just take the candy and run kind of vibe. Same thing. I think I do want to talk about how scary and important Halloween was for unmarried young women and how there are these traditions in relation to finding a husband that we don't hear about as much or even really practice today. So bobbing for apples is the closest thing that we do, but at least in my experience is in no way related to or has these direct associations to these like unmarried women competing for who will be first down the aisle um and it's such a weird random thing like i was trying to remember if i had actually ever bobbed for apples before and i can only think of like elementary school halloween parties perhaps or like autumn festivals shit like that where i feel as though i had probably done it but does anyone question like <laughs> This is super odd activity to do. Anyways, what are you going to do? So one of the reasons why I feel as though and what I was reading is that we don't really talk about this aspect or this tradition of Halloween as much. And it's mostly because it's so much linked to like looking to the future than it is celebrating or latching on to the dead or the deceased. However, regardless, the constant is that we are still needing the help or feeling the presence of these spirits, um, whether that's to celebrate them or for them to like help guide and test our future. In 18th century Ireland, a matchmaking cook might bury a ring in her mashed potatoes on Halloween night, hoping to bring true love to the diner who found it. In Scotland, fortune tellers recommended that an eligible young woman name a hazelnut for each of her suitors and then toss the nut into a fireplace. The nut that burned to ashes rather than popping or exploding, as the story went, represented the girl's future husband. 
And then in some versions of this legend, the opposite was true. So the nut that burned away symbolized a love that would not last. Another tale had it that if a young woman ate a sugary concoction made out of walnuts, hazelnuts, and nutmeg before bed on Halloween night, she would dream about her future husband. One of the last couple is that a young woman tossed apple peels over her shoulder, hoping that the peel would fall on the floor in the shape of her future husband's initials. That one's a little specific. And so then I guess like your last desperate you know, attempt if all these other options didn't work into seeing your future, you would take an egg yolk and you would put it in a, you know, a bowl of standing water. And then you would stand in front of a mirror in a dark room. And then you'd be like holding a candle and you would try to see your future husband's like face, like in the mirror, like over your shoulder. Um, so <laughs> I just thought, as we like to say, that that was wildly fascinating. And I, I don't know. I just feel like perhaps there's like a missed opportunity here. I, I for the past maybe like four years, I've started to get more into spooky season and be more um, aware of like horror film history as, as I become more interested in it. The reason why I kind of never dappled in it is really just because I'm a true scaredy cat and I I just genuinely can't handle it but there's so much about like artistic and like meaningful horror that I am now so interested in and participate in so this is maybe just also my ignorance but I'm not aware of in particular any horror movies that like feature this kind of storytelling in it or or use any of these old kind of rituals that we don't talk about I feel as though that could be super fascinating but the closest thing I I feel like we get is is kind of bridal horror and um the closest thing that I could think about was Tim Burton's A Corpse Bride and how she is dead but she still is hoping to become married even in the afterlife Gianna, I feel as though we should hold off on this and actually save these questions for our special horror film expert who will be joining us later on in the month on the podcast because I feel like she'll have a lot of really great responses and and be able to guide us through some of those themes or maybe point out something that we're missing. But I agree, like, uh, again, like, I, I... as well am truly the biggest scaredy cat of all time but i have recently discovered that deep interest and appreciation for horror and um and i think this would be a really cool concept to to think about yeah yeah i agree so um diving into more traditions that I feel as though have kitsch energy. Bianca, I thought it would be fun to play just a little guessing game where um, you think these Halloween traditions, origin stories, what have you, come from. Oh, okay. I don't know any. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so black cats. Like, what's the deal with black cats? Mm -hmm. Well, um... I believe that cats are guardians of the underworld, and so I don't know where black cats come in specifically, but I I feel as though cats in general like are guardians of like spirits. 
Ooh, that's... Going back to, like, Egyptian mythology and religion. Yeah. I definitely do not think that you're wrong there. I think that there's probably a lot that is tied up there. Um, However, based off kind of the knowledge that I have going into this, the association of black cats and spookiness actually dates all the way back to the medieval ages, where these dark kittens were considered a symbol of the devil. Oh, (laughs) that's cute. Um, There's also an association with black cats and how those are how witches guise themselves and why you can Mm. never see a witch is because it's really a black cat. Mm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Or as they call it, like, the familiar. Like, a black cat is a witch's familiar. Ooh. Yeah. So we talked about bobbing for apples, although I I could not share that info ahead of time, but that would have been a wild one. Um, (laughs) What about bats, other than how they're, like, batty? (laughs) Batty? Batty. Um, Okay. I feel like bats are interesting because of their teeth. I'm thinking, like, vampire associations and like preying on feminine thinking about like the bridal aspect like preying on like virgin women and bats eat fruit and fruit has an association with women and fertility as we've talked about in our watermelon episode Mm -hmm. yeah so it's likely that bats were present at the early celebration of the kind of proto halloween time um not just symbolically, but like literally. So as part of Sewin, the Celts lit large bonfires, as we talked about, which attracted like a bunch of bugs, essentially. And like the insects in turn would attract bats, um, oh. which soon became associated with that festival. And so medieval folklore explained upon the spooky connection of the bat with a number of superstitions like built around that idea and how they're also these harbors of death as well Mm, interesting Mm. um i mean what about jack-o'-lanterns how do we feel about (sighs) jack-o'-lanterns i feel like i feel like i should know this i did not know like i don't question any of these things and like that's my job (laughs) man i feel like i did know this at one point and i forgot what's that what's that thing with like the pumpkin head that guy jack (laughs) (laughs) what is that Isn't there like a head? Are you talking about like the? Oh no, I know what you're talking about. I'm getting like this mixed up with like the headless horse rider dude. Oh, that's who I'm thinking of. Is that the same thing? (laughs) I'm thinking of like, you know, that episode of Wishbone? Do you remember Wishbone? Yeah. And it was like that, there was like a Halloween episode about this. And I feel like that's where my associations with jack o' lanterns are going, is to Wishbone. The only memory I have of Wishbone, which I think they're bringing back, by the way, um, is like Oliver Twist's story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so like, but like, what is the purpose of like a jack-o'-lantern as it functions? Well, you put a candle in it. So like lighting a candle for (laughs) your lost spirits. Okay, yeah. So they can find their way to your home to, you know, be ghosty pals. But we were trying to avoid that earlier. Uh, maybe to, like, disguise. <laughs> Instead of a mask, it's like, you know how you carve a face on a pumpkin? <laughs> Is it to, like, 
Bianca, is it to like trick the ghosts? Oh, I got you. Bianca, I know that you don't really watch The Office, but there's an episode, there's a Halloween episode that's really good, and Dwight carves a pumpkin and he wears it on his head and he can't get it off. And I have seen like the movie. I wish of I never all. carved out that damn pumpkin. <laughs> So the jack-o'-lanterns originated in Ireland using turnips instead of pumpkins originally and supposedly were based on a legend about a man named Stingy Jack who repeatedly trapped the devil and only let him go on the condition that Jack would never go to hell. When he died, however, Jack learned that heaven didn't really want his soul either. (laughs) So he was condemned to wander the earth as a ghost for all eternity. The devil gave Jack a lump of burning coal and a carved-out turnip to light his way. Eventually, locals began carving frightening faces into their own gourds to scare off evil spirits. Oh, interesting. I feel like I didn't know that. I feel like there's some other story that I'm thinking of with a jack-o'-lantern. I feel like pop culture has turned, like, jack o'lantern perhaps into like a different kind of character i feel like we're getting that confused with like the headless horseman dude i feel as though those are different things but maybe yeah doing a great job (laughs) um and so i thought this would be a good question to end on as we get into kitsch but the black and orange color scheme of it all um i would guess like the the changing colors of the season like i just feel like orange is an association with nature um like i you know the colors change around this time to a very orangey aesthetic so that's what i would think but Mm -hmm. yeah you're 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 basically right on the money so the classic halloween colors can can be traced back to that celtic festival so in if we want um but black you know represented the death of um summer while orange is this um like you said this transition into mm-hmm. autumn and representing the autumn harvest season that we have but then i feel like as we move forward in a more modern context the other two colors are green and purple so i uh, feel totally. like it's black orange green and purple that will kind of help us I don't know. I think a good color scheme is a good visual for our next conversation. Totally. Yeah. But process those colors in your head. Let that, you know, mold and kind of mesh together while we take a little break. And when we come back, we are talking about all things Halloween kitsch. So now we are going to look a little bit at Halloween kitsch. And, you know, when Gian and I were kind of laying out our episodes for the month of October, we kind of naturally gravitated towards, you know, that very horror gendered 
aesthetic that I think we have, like we were saying earlier, become very interested in in the past few years. And we were also thinking about campiness, um, which we're going to, which will be our topic next week as well. Um, but as we started thinking about, you know, some some aspects that we're missing, we decided to think about kind of like that cutesy kitsch aesthetic that is popping up everywhere, not just with fall. I think, you know, we've been talking about Ray Dunn. We were talking about different kind of like um, TJ Maxx suburban aesthetics, you know, of like the fall season in our past few episodes. And I think that that kind of like meshes really well with this idea of like holiday kitsch, not just not just fall in particular, not just like the fall y'all signs that you you know see at Hobby Lobby or whatever. I'm talking about like Halloween in particular kitsch that that you start finding everywhere. Um, and it's kind of these like very cute and very like happy and it's more on the like spooky side than the scary side of of Halloween I would say um and like you might think that this is this is geared towards younger audiences but I think actually like a more mature crowd is also really interested in that idea of Halloween and holiday kitsch so Gianna what do you think of when you think of kitsch in the context of this holiday yeah so as we were just talking about i do think i see a particular color scheme in my head but that also happens to embody the spirit of the jenner sisters as of 2019 um (laughs) in their costuming uh gowns Mm -hmm. but how i would define it perhaps in my own terms is revived nostalgia almost something Mm. old maybe that was not thought of as particularly cute at the time revived and consumed to be cute this is how i feel about maximalistic energy decor Mm -hmm. i think that's definitely reviving aesthetics that were seen as like not very cute or kind of looked down on but now are being revitalized into something that is like high decor right right so i want to talk about the concept of kitsch like it is something that is really difficult to define and study a guardian article reads that quote to try to define kitsch is to enter a hall of mirrors that reflects your own prejudice the word is german and has been used since the 20s but one person's kitsch is another's lovely table lamp so how can we talk about it without revealing these layers of snobbery kitsch is defined as quote art objects or design considered to be in poor taste because of excessive garishness or sentimentality but sometimes appreciated in an ironic or knowing way Kitsch was first used in the 19th century to refer to inexpensive pictures sold as souvenirs to tourists. One frequently suggested etymological origin, um, again, is German from the German verb verkitchen, meaning to make cheaply. Um, Thus, from its earliest usage, kitsch was linked to a type of cheapened form of art, something that is either mass-produced or produced very quickly without much quote aesthetic merit or taste in the book kitsch 
history theory practice, art historian Monica Kelman Chapin writes, quote, Kitsch, the mere word evokes mental images of cutesy collectibles, treacly trinkets, sweetly sentimental scenes, thematically trite tabletop tchotchkes, or perhaps anemic appropriations of canonical works of art, whether in frameable production form or as a garden folly available for sale in a variety of sizes. Although frequently dismissed as facile, lowbrow, or one-off, throwaway aesthetics, kitsch is surprisingly mobile and complex. It can constitute all manner of mass-produced trifles, as well as the, quote, fine art essays. Then we have a very famous essay from art critic Clement Greenberg from 1939. He wrote Avant-Garde and Kitsch, Quote, one and the same civilization produces simultaneously two different things, such as a poem by T.S. Eliot and a Tin Pan Alley song, or a painting by Brock and a Saturday evening post cover. For Greenberg, there are two very stark polarities of culture happening. This kind of very serious, high modernist art, such as poetry or cubist painting, versus this like lowbrow preferred art for the majority, which includes pop music and you know paintings by Norman Rockwell is what he um, uses as those examples. Again, from the art historian Kelman Chapin, they write, quote, Kitsch is almost universally recognized as a denigration, as a category of objects, as a set of responses, but simultaneously widely elastic in its parameters and has generated quite a bit of theorizing about what kitsch is and might be. What it suggests about class and taste and how it functions as reflective, proscriptive, and constructive devices within culture. Many early discussions of kitsch centered on its assumed parasitic relationship to the potential of very high art. And much of the writing that we have about kitsch is very much centered on the visual arts, but it's also a concept that has been applied to other forms of art, including music, literature, theater. And then increasingly, this concept of kitsch has been applied to other fields as well. So not just the art world, but it's debated in architecture, business studies, economics, um, critical management, she cites organization theory, design, urban planning, media studies, political science, religious studies, queer theory. So again, like kitsch is this weird word that takes place in like very diverse facets of our life. And the things that Greenberg viewed in like this very derogatory light of kitsch are now becoming very trendy. So where does this leave kitsch as it relates to kind of Halloween, what we're seeing right now? So I want to think about like, what are some kitschy things that are actually viewed as high art? And I think like a classic example is like the balloon dog. So it's interesting that kitsch can also take this form of like, I don't know, self-reflection where I feel like someone you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use this example because it's easy someone like like Jeff Koons is playing on the idea of kitsch to elevate his art to a high art standard and that's I don't know that seems like kind of this like 
reversal that we were also talking about with art news today like something that was like intended to be very high art is like very low brow or, or that flip-flop mm-hmm. like something that's low brow is now something that's revered on a museum walls in an exhibition um also i wanted to note that the art history babes have a great episode on holiday kitsch um specifically they kind of release this episode more about you know around the winter holiday season with a lot of kind of like Christmas holiday kitsch of the winter time. Um, but I think that that's a great episode to think about things also in terms of um, Halloween as well. So Gianna, what items come to mind when you think about Halloween kitsch in particular and like what makes it like so cutesy and so trendy, even though it's like a weird thing of like stuff, you know, it's just kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause even with, the things that are actually meant to be more scary especially when Mm -hmm. you see it in a storefront like a freddy spirit halloween yeah spirit halloween like you see that big orange sign in your local jc pennies that closed down and like you have a expectation of of what it's going to look like in there it's going to be temporary like wire walls with a bunch of Mm -hmm. temporary merchandise in it And I feel as though maybe also that space is part of the kitsch factor because things aren't as scary when they're not in use. So even when I Uh see that like Freddy Krueger mask or the hockey mask, whoever that guy is, I don't fucking know. Uh, Jason. 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 Um, Watch Galaxy Quest. That's a good maybe Halloween movie. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, it's not, it's just a plastic mask. It's not being in use. It's right. It's a thing that I know exists for this type of season. I feel like that maybe mm-hmm. attributes to what I'm feeling. Aside from the consumer world, well, this also deals with the consumer world, but kind of going back to maybe an artist that I think uses kitsch and also ties into like monster theory which you can always refer back to our monster theory episode but ties very well with these new halloween concepts is there's an artist francis goodman who i am literally obsessed with love this person (laughs) very much um she makes a lot of forms out of acrylic fingernails like fake acrylic Mm. fingernails and that's her main source of medium is this found commercial object that she recycles and she makes this like tentacle like form that looks very animalistic looks very monstrous very snake-like and the colors that are brought out in that i feel like are very kitsch and then tied with the monster theory of it all those images are it's kind of like what's circulating in my head a little bit like your Jeff Koons Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it was just I was trying to find more I guess theory behind Halloween kitsch in particular but whenever I'm like trying to do research everything that just came up was like shop shop holiday kitsch like shop this shop that like here's Mm. my pinterest board for holiday kitsch but that in itself was just so interesting just to see the visuals of what comes up and i was looking at like people's different pinterest boards about like specifically these pinterest boards are called like halloween kitsch decor about how to decorate your space in a kitschy halloween way but then in the opposite direction of that 
I also was reading these like blog posts from seemed like very like rich people who have big houses and big Halloween parties and like they have the whole to do for the holiday season. And there were a few blog posts that were about decorating your home to avoid holiday kitsch. And that was super interesting in terms of like that idea of accessibility and what is cheap and what is kind of like for the populace rather than what is for these people who are like, it was like how to decorate your home for your dinner party and like how, like, but how to avoid kitsch at your Halloween Mm. party. And it's like that the images that they were using were like very, I would say like very high end Mm -hmm. kind of event setup. Like, I don't know if I've talked about this a lot, but I work as an event planner. I have like a certification for it. And so just like the the images are like very specific to like an extremely high-end type of gathering and that's just another like really interesting concept between like these blogs that people are putting out versus like these kind of like I don't want to say average but accessible trendy kitsch items that people like that people like want to decorate their homes with. it was just so I don't know. There was like a very weird contrast between those two. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned like the party planning of it all because one of the last parties that I like threw or one of the events that I last threw as an employee was in the memory care center that I was working for. And Halloween was, I had to like tread very lightly because like nothing can be scary. Nothing can be like triggering. Mm-hmm. So all the things that we had um, you know, we're, we're like very family friendly decor, but, mm-hmm. but they were those cheaply made also decor items. Um, so that definitely set a tone, but I even think what is interesting about that is any like event or any activity that you're doing with people who have different forms of dementia is that, um, it really helps when things have these familiarity to it, this, um, mm. this nostalgia to it. So you can have like a talking point with them. So that was also a thing that we had to be aware of. And I think kitsch was definitely a part of that. Uh, but when it also comes to like the food art- artistry of it all, like if you go to your Pinterest and you get those like mm-hmm. fun, different, like Halloween desserts that, that you can make, even that has a similar energy to these types of, um, other goods totally totally i think there's also something you said for like catering an mm-hmm. event like that and like something that is like very high end mm-hmm. but then something yeah like food kitsch would be a like i'm trying to imagine thing. like an elevated halloween brownie but like all i can think of are like my mummies in a blanket Right. But those are so cute. There's, I'm thinking of like the witch's fingers, you the know? The witch's like, fingers. Yeah. Or like a good, like a cute sugar cookie. Sugar cookie. You know, mm-hmm. that you see in like Walmart. This time around, it's going to be orange, purple, green. Fourth of July. Right. Oh, I love it's those going things. to be blue, white, and mm. red. Like, love those cookies. Like, I can't, I'm having a hard time imagining something like that, like a food, a consumer food for the season, season that's not kitsch right yeah and even what you said going back to um thinking about those ties to nostalgia the kitsch items that are were kind of like flooding my feeds are do have that like very nostalgic quality to them I don't know if there's like another word to describe it other than like it looks old like all of these items that were like pegged or pinned as being 
kitschy look like they're from the 50s. Like there is this freaking cute little jack-o'-lantern with a little black cat, but it they look so happy and like they look so cute. And then I am obsessed with this. It's like a postcard, I think, and it's like a happy Halloween postcard. I don't I don't know how to describe like the feeling of this postcard other than it just it looks old like it completely looks like it's from another era I'm obsessed with it it's like two like pumpkin people and there's like a pumpkin wearing a top hat and a little like old suit and then there's a like what I would presume to be like a lady pumpkin who has like a big feather hat and like a orange dress and these like jack they have like jack-o'-lantern heads and they're like embracing each other and smiling at each other and these like jack-o'-lanterns look so cute they look like they're like so in love and celebrating halloween together it's like it's what like, we talked about with our drag episode how do you know it's a girl frog how do you know it's a girl pumpkin exactly it's like it's like well the, the lady pumpkin has a feather hat on and the dress like it's just it's really interesting i don't i don't know how to just how to describe this like feeling of kitsch you know what I mean? It's just other than it like it harkens back to something that maybe I haven't necessarily experienced, but like in our in our like perceived notions of that time appears old or from another era. You know what's so interesting the more we talk about this in relation to other seasons is I can imagine what a elevated, like classy, sophisticated Christmas party looks like. I can also right. imagine what a different kind of Christmas party looks like. One that maybe is like more wholesome where you have like big colored light bulbs. Ugly sweater party. Ugly sweater party. Like big colored lights on your tree and on your house instead of having... That's a good story, Grim. <laughs> That's too damn bad. I was thinking of the Friends or Chandler's like, Yes. What happened to the big, big, yeah. <laughs> the big, big lights? That's a good story, Grandpa. I'm tired of this grandpa. Um, but you you can see those differences in, in your head, and I know that you can all do that. You can picture like a white, clean, and like a blue Christmas versus like the the big bold colored Christmas. Even when mm-hmm. I think about like like when I was a kid, I used to go trick or treating in like a rich neighborhood, like with my middle schooler friends, and you could go into like the cool houses that had the maze. And like even then, they were taken to like a full like aesthetic where there was like lights and like black lights and cobwebs right there's still a vibe there that obviously there's just like a lot more going on here but it doesn't deter from the feeling of this cute little postcard that you just showed me yeah like even when i go into a haunted house at a haunted house festival mm. festival or whatever you go into a, mm-hmm. a theme park it still has that feeling i can still be like scared of it but then when i take a step back and i like digest it I don't know how to like explain it. I'm like, is mm-hmm. is the nostalgia just now like so mainstream in this holiday that we like can't get away from it? Yeah, that's something that's really interesting about about Halloween. It's like it's trendy. I think that Halloween kitsch is very, very trendy. And there's something about I don't know, there's something about like maybe it's maybe it, it's the association with fall like we've been talking about like that like suburban fandom about this season in particular that is I think is kind of like infiltrated like I don't know like one of those subcultures that we've been referencing or like 
a very like Halloween horror focused mm-hmm. culture, like subculture. I don't know. There seems to be like a very interesting merging of those two that's happening where it's like it's like elevated kitsch or it's like acceptable kitsch or something like that within the holiday within the halloween season right exactly it's like even if it's elevated it's still not deterring away from right what is kitsch it's like not a separate thing like how i feel like i can divide christmas into kind of two different aesthetics Mm. i'm having a hard time with Mm -hmm. this which is really fascinating i really wasn't even thinking about that till this combo yeah, well, do you have any other thoughts before we wrap it up for today, Gianna? Oh, man. If anyone wants to hit up a pumpkin patch with me, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in like a pumpkin patch kind of kind of mood. So, you know, yeah. slide into my DMs once Instagram is back up. Oh, yeah. Instagram is being weird also. So if you didn't see resources or like any images or anything from us that's why this, this episode, that's yeah. why. So. Don't act like you don't have time to listen to this episode because your social media is down. <laughs> hey. Hey. Also, if there are any art pop tarts in the Boston area, any Boston cream pie bebes, please hit me up. I would love to meet you. I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to learn more about some of the some of the things to see in the area. That would be awesome. Yeah. So and uh, Danishes, you do have your assignments, so we will yes. be checking in soon. Yes. For the upcoming month of October, again, we are going to be covering a Halloween theme every week during this month. Next week, we are going into cult and camp in Halloween horror films. Then we've got uh, some pet death and spirituality talk, and we have a special guest at the end of the month to talk with us about horror and gender in a final girl discussion. And then at the beginning of November, we are also excited to have another guest to talk with us about hauntology and Dia de los Muertos. So please um, make sure you're signed up for our monthly newsletter, and then you will get all of these updates about upcoming episodes right to your inbox every first Tuesday of the month. Yay. Well, with that, everybody be safe. Enjoy your first week of spooky season, and we'll talk to you all next Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.